0: This week, I talked to journalist Amanda Hess about her New York Times article, How the Myth of the Artistic Genius Excuses the Abuse of Women. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling biru Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. So we've talked about it before here on the show, that idea of should we separate the art from the artist? And now with the perpetually expanding list of industry players accused of horrific abuses in Hollywood and here in Scandinavia, that question is perpetually asked. Amanda Hess's New York Times piece about the myth of the artistic genius has some very interesting perspectives on this question. Journalist Amanda Hess has written for Wired, LA Times, Slate, and the New York Times. In 2016, she was named one of three inaugural David Carr Fellowship recipients at the New York Times. In 2014, she wrote a powerful and very talked-about article called Why Women Aren't Welcome on the Internet. It dealt with her own and other women's experiences as victims of misogynist online harassment. This is a topic she often returns to. Amanda Hess, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me
0: so in your recent article, which was really great um you start off by saying, can we now do away with the idea of separating the art from the artist um, can we
1: it's you know it takes a little bit of work and I think is difficult for some people to put their minds around but my argument is that Is that we cannot separate them. Um, And I think we've seen in recent weeks some of the people who have been accused of or exposed of harassment uh, and worse against women, um, against young boys in their industry, um, we've seen that their actions, you know, off screen or on set, have really affected the art that they've made. And uh, to me, most crucially, have affected the art that other people haven't been able to make, uh, because harassment really does discourage people and push them out of industries and push them off of projects. Uh, So I think we should take that into consideration when we consider like somebody's body of work.
0: Which is such an interesting point. One of the women who who came out and came forward regarding Louis C.K. actually did say that she didn't go into, she did not want to pursue her own, own comedy career after that experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought that was a really powerful thing that she said, um, especially in comedy, you know, there's this assumption that women maybe just aren't raised to think of themselves as funny or uh, they maybe they don't have you know, what it takes to tour around the country uh, doing like three or four sets a night or maybe like some people might say that women just aren't funny. Uh, And so this was a really powerful counter argument to that, I thought, that for some women, you know, they are explicitly forced out of this industry um, by sexual misbehavior of powerful men in it.
0: Yeah, so this is really um a question of power yeah and cuz one of the things i thought was very interesting in the article is that that you say also that you can't separate the art from the artist but you can't separate the artist from the industry and you made the connection that like for a shoe or a clothing line that they try to hide unsavory aspects of their production sort of child labor or whatever that may be i'm guessing you're you're thinking about and this is what hollywood is doing as well right
1: yeah I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the conception of, like, an auteur, uh, you might call Louis C.K. somebody like that um, because he, you know, he wrote and directed and starred in his TV show and his film that was just canceled. Um, We have this really romantic idea of the auteur, like it's somebody who is delivering their artistic consciousness to us, and we see it as this really sort of... um, almost mystical thing that they're doing. Um, but really, they're working in an industry. They have sometimes, you know, hundreds of people working with and beneath them, people who are sort of, because films are not seen as typical workplaces, like, subject to the whims of this person. And so if somebody abuses that power, in my opinion, like, they, they shouldn't be allowed to have it anymore, you know. Um, So I think it can be really clarifying to try to take away the kind of mysticism that we see about art and great art and great artists and see it as, you know, a a workplace. Who
0: decides this concept of the artistic genius?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think there are a couple of answers to that. Uh, I think one is, you know, I even, you know, I quoted a guy in my story um, Mark Anthony Neal, who is a professor at Duke University, uh, who, in 2009 had a very uh, sort of simplistic, I would say, idea of how to understand somebody's art in the context of, of abuse. And what he said was, "Let the art stand for itself, and these men stand in judgment, and never the twain shall meet." Um, and actually, I, I heard from him, because he's really reconsidered that position in the past, you know, um, eight or nine years since uh, he wrote that. And I think a lot of people are starting to reconsider it now. Uh, And, you know, I think it comes from academics and film critics uh, and also just like industry self-justification. One of the really difficult things, I think, about stopping harassment not just in the arts, but in other places too. I think we've seen this in journalism as well. Is that there's not a lot of count- accountability outside of the context of an individual job. So in the United States, you know, we've had sexual harassment law on the books for many years, and uh, you know, our country sees. Sexual harassment as uh, gender discrimination, um, and it's illegal because you're not allowed to, like as we've said, uh, banish women <laughs> from workplaces, essentially because, you know people men can't behave themselves. But I think what we're seeing recently is that that law has only done so much, uh, I think, partially because companies, or in the case of films like, you know, sets and Studios, like to handle things privately if they handle them at all because they don't want sort of like the bad press that comes from it and so it becomes pretty easy for abusers to like skip from workplace to workplace, especially in Hollywood, you know when you're on a new set and in a new workplace like every few months I don't know how to deal with that uh, because it doesn't seem like there's a sort of greater sense of accountability in Hollywood. I mean a lot of what we've seen is is sort of and I sympathize with this bystanders who who didn't know what to do or who didn't speak up at the time and are now speaking up and saying, you know, I knew that Harvey Weinstein was doing those things, but um, I, I wasn't sure what to do about it.
0: Yeah, who are you supposed to call if it's, or what do you do? I mean, I thought I quite I thought I hear that a lot as well, and I felt that yeah. myself. I mean, there's stories I've heard about people through my career, but you're like, it's a rumor, and you. What are you supposed to do in that situation if it's not me directly?
1: Yeah, I think it's that's a really difficult um, decision. Um, to me, you know, coming from journalism, like I'm a member of a union at the New York Times, and I have felt and have been working a little bit with our union to see if we can play a role in... Um, you know, being a a safe place for people to talk about that stuff and to report things, uh, because a a lot of people are sort of um, skeptical of HR in companies, uh, because there's this idea, you know, we saw this with uh, the New York Times reporting on Uber, uh, where women were reporting sexual harassment to Uber's HR, and HR was sort of working as a cleanup crew for the company as opposed to um, being there to help the employees. So, I mean, you know, actors are uh unionized as well um, i I sort of wonder if there are outside bodies that can be leveraged to provide some more accountability to an industry like that.
0: It does seem like there has to be sort of an outside entity that can come in and do something in these situations
1: yeah, um, but I mean also from you know the an economic standpoint, especially with actors uh you know, there's such a power differential between a young actor who's just starting out in a studio or a director. Um, and I don't know if that, I mean, will ever go away unless people just stop going to movies, which they, they haven't really gone to movies as much this year as they had been. Um, but that's always going to create a, this potential for an abuse of power. Um, and, I don't know that that's easily resolvable.
0: Going back to the sort of the art and the artist, one of the things with with a few of these people, um, at least for me, for example, with Louis C.K., is they are their art. They seem to have been making movies about themselves and and series about themselves, him and William and a few others, the whole time, which makes it really hard to, especially now afterwards, not to revisit, one does revisit these stories that they have written and, and been in and see them in a different way. Um, they're so clearly connected to uh, the male psyche and relationships and things like that, that it's really hard um, in in certain situations. Why do you think that they do that?
1: That's like the question. That is a question of the hour to me. I you know with Louis C.K., um, a critic, Matt Zoller Seitz actually uh, came up with this with a theory that I buy into now, which is uh, Louis C.K., the things that he uh, has been accused of and that he's has confirmed happened are, um, you know, kind of exhibitionism, uh, you know, like uh, taking off all of his clothes in front of uh, female colleagues when they're kind of trapped in a hotel room or something and masturbating in front of them. And um, he's he's done a kind of similar type of like exhibitionism in his work too, where it's almost like he's flaunting what he's done without, you know, totally, um, coming to terms with the fact that he has done those things. You know, I know that some people have, uh, have mentioned to him in the lead up to, uh, the movie that was supposed to come out this week. Uh, I love you, daddy, that there's a, there's a character in that movie who, who does the same thing that Louis has done, which is masturbate in front of a colleague. And somebody asked him about it and and said, isn't this quite similar to the rumors about what you've done? And he said, you know, I never thought about that. That's so hard to process
0: because either that's a sign of being a total sort of psychopath that you're not seeing your
1: own you know,
0: what you're doing, or you just want to get caught. It's yeah. just very, very odd.
1: <laughs> That's the Freudian interpretation, like he wanted to get caught, and I feel like maybe maybe part of him did do that, uh, did want that. Um, but to me, it's so, you know, there's something sort of bizarre and interesting about that, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's menacing, I think, because... Um, at the same time that he was he was making art about this stuff, he was through you know himself and his manager and just his position in the industry was was in a way threatening women to never speak about what had happened and their own experiences. Um, one of the sort of I think interesting coda's to Louis and you know what he was doing in the show is um, Tignataro, who had been a bit of a mentee to Louie. He really helped boost her career, uh, cut ties with him over the past year. Um, She's since said over, you know, learning about these accusations. And in her own TV show, One Mississippi has um, really explored the issue of like workplace harassment, wrote in a character, a boss who masturbates in front of his employee, um, and has been sort of exploring it from her perspective in a way that I think is so wonderful and interesting. Um, so at times when I get sort of depressed that Louis has been able to like make uh, critically acclaimed art about this stuff for such a long time, like I think about Taeg Nataro and how she has been able to to turn it into something wonderful, and everybody should watch her show. <laughs>
0: there's sort of like a thing now about like the grading this harasser is less disgusting than this one and this one. And should we forget, you know what I mean? That like, mm-hmm. well, he was just doing that. Well, this was, and I, I mean, I can, of course there's violence involved and there's just power play involved, but how do you feel about the discussion of sort of the, of, of that in general?
1: Uh, I think it's a little bit beside the point. Um, I mean, I do think, I, I think, For some people, there's this fear that, uh, you know, Harvey Weinstein, who is accused of multiple rapes, of, you know, heinous criminal acts, might be uh, put on the same level as a guy who, you know, made inappropriate comments to women at work. Uh, But I think everybody's smart enough to understand the distinctions between those things. Um, To me, the important thing is to understand, like, in the context of the workplace, what is the effect of those actions? And, uh, you know, a huge number of actions, whether they are, you know, felonies or whether they are, like, comments, really affect the way that women see their work, have a relationship to their work, like stay in a workplace or leave. um, And that has a really measurable cost to women. It's like, I think of it almost as like a tax to women that they, you know, are, are subject to be harassed at work. Uh, and so, um, to me, I I sort of think about what the effects are of those behaviors as opposed to like trying to rank abusers from best (laughs) to worst, you know? Um, yeah, I think there's also, there's a related discussion that's uh, you know, is this a slippery slope? How far is this going to go? Am I not allowed to date? <laughs> uh, and I'm not too worried about that either. I mean, I think we've really just started to explore this issue and um, understand like how deep our sexual harassment problem is.
0: Yeah, because um, I find that weird as well. People sort of saying, "When is this going to stop?" And the point is the opposite that this is just starting and, and and if we do it well and with good journalism and good conversations and people at workplaces taking it, I mean, in the right direction, that's the whole point.
1: Yeah. I mean, I do have, I have my own concern about this line of reporting that is focusing on very powerful men in very visible industries. I I completely understand and, and totally respect the work that my colleagues have done in revealing these people, but I hope that, you know, I mean, these, I hope that we can also hold people accountable who are not famous, uh, whose workers are working class people as opposed to, you know, A-list famous film actresses. I'm hoping that that's where this goes next and we sort of find a way to cover those people's stories too.
0: Right, right. Um, Going back to the movies themselves, do you have a uh, a line like "No, I I won't watch their movies anymore" or "I can't watch their movies anymore"? Or do you think that there's a point in um, seeing these, in quotations, artistic geniuses' films?
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question and is sort of a personal one. Um, I I'm someone who's not I'm not like a boycotter, uh, so I'm not. I wouldn't be interested in, in stopping anyone from watching any of these films or from them being aired, uh, but I do have my own sort of personal ickiness things. Um, <laughs> like, I, I personally feel like the things that we know that Woody Allen has done are unacceptable and really gross to me, and so it's difficult for me to watch his movies. Um, but I also feel like, you know, some of the... The actions of of studios and networks in recent weeks, I think, have not been have been less about um, protecting people and more about protecting themselves. Like, for example, HBO had removed Louis C.K. from an upcoming charity show, uh, which I think makes complete sense. I'm sure that Louis w- would also not be super excited about showing his face at the moment. And that's something that, you know, takes him away from a place where he might offend while people are still sort of like trying to come to terms with what he's done. But they've also taken down, you know, comedy specials that are available on HBO streaming that were filmed years ago. And I think those can be really powerful resources to people. You know, it's it's interesting, and I think some instructive, to sometimes watch these films again and understand the ways in which, like attitudes, uh, have been channeled through them, in in the same way that you know Donald Trump was for many years, on The Apprentice, uh, a reality show. And it's really difficult to find, um, to find the episodes of that show. <laughs> it's really hard to rewatch The Apprentice, uh, which is something that I think a lot of both journalists and just like regular citizens like might find instructive right now. So I think there are some things that it's helpful to have around.
0: Yeah, to not just eradicate the canon of work, but let people sort of meet that work with their own judgment.
1: Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, watching a film is such an emotional experience that if somebody has an emotional connection to a Woody Allen movie, like, I don't begrudge them that. Um, I can understand that. Uh, And if you're just a consumer or just, you know, a casual watcher of films, like, I don't think it's your responsibility to change the whole climate around this. Um, So watch whatever you like, you know? Um, but I, I do think it's, it's important and and interesting to talk about that stuff in, in ways that are, that complicate our viewing of them.
0: Right. Is it important to bring up this, these, um, mostly men's, I guess, um, biographies when, when sort of talking about their movies? We have, for example, next year, 2018 is a big Bergman 100 year anniversary, which will be celebrated is the wrong word, but which will be a big thing here. Um, And and of course, there's many, many stories of him being a quite of a bully, tyrannical um, director. Uh, And is it important in that to sort of bring these up, or should we just be talking about his movies, which have fantastic portraits of women, but there was sort of another side to him.
1: Yeah. Well, I always think it's more interesting to talk about the stuff that complicates it as well, you know, and that doesn't need to be every conversation, Um, but especially, you know, I mean, his legacy of the the way that he made movies like is alive today, Uh, and it's, it would be fascinating to talk about him in that context.
0: Because one of the things that, I mean, Louis will know that will happen to him and Weinstein will know that will happen to him, that forever now his name, when people talk about him and his work, this will always follow. Mm. They must know this.
1: Yeah. I mean, they knew it now if they didn't (laughs) didn't know
0: it before. Or they wanted to with their work.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think that you know, there's a part hidden in me that feels bad about that. Like it's, it's my fault or it's our fault that we're bringing it up, but we know whose fault it is. You know. Well,
0: I, I mean, Louis was some, um, his, the series was something that I was, a, something that was really, really important to me or that I really, I was a single mom at the time. I just thought it was excellent. And I thought it was an incredible piece of art. And it did feel like a huge sort of stab in the back that, that there were many mm. episodes there where he was doing things that I, like when he, the, the episode where he almost rapes Pamela Adlon and he comes back where sort of, I was giving him a pass to be like, well, he's yeah. telling something, he's saying something about, the male culture and the men, and, and now it just feels like, no, you weren't. Um, and it's it, <laughs> even though, I mean, it's something that, that, that is far, it is sort of strange to, to think about that right now.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, it feels like a, I also was a huge fan of the show. Um, and I remember reading, you know, criticism of the show as those episodes were coming out And I think there was a lot of, um, we gave him a lot of leeway or sort of assumed that he was some sort of, of genius in understanding, you know, sexual relationships. Um, And I do think there's this way that we like to see, or we're drawn to films and TV shows that like, push the envelope in terms of like sexual situations and so it's sort of fascinating for us to watch uh Louis the character do things that you know are are bad right and to see to explore that side of his character but to to do that and and to be doing it off screen like a is not necessary like there i think there's still this strain of idea that's like if you really want to like understand how this works like you know, you, you also need to sort of be a little bit of a bad person. Absolutely not true.
0: Right, which is part of that genius myth,
1: right? Yeah, and it makes it feel, it made me feel like he was using the show as a bit of a shield because there is this sort of backwards thing that happens where it, you think, oh, if you know, if he shows sexual assault, rape on the show, uh, Louis himself, the character, was um, sexually assaulted by a woman in a previous season. Uh, we think that you know, if you're if you're sort of brave and sensitive enough to do that, then then that makes you like a better man. Uh, and I really I really feel like he was using it as a bit of a shield for his personal life in a way that um, does feel a bit like a betrayal.
0: Right, and and I know I've I, I talked about this with someone, and they said, well, if the if you got those positive feelings and it made you think in the series you thought it was really good why don't you just stay there why does it have to change now but it's exactly what you're saying that it, it it makes it feel like this shield that it
1: really wasn't true and I think we can recognize like there are aspects of the show that are brilliant you know I feel like there's this idea that you know we don't have to to we don't have to say that that Louis CK is not a brilliant person but um there is this way that his actions like complicate his work that i think you know make it less impressive to me and i think that's that's a valid thing to bring into the criticism right
0: and and i would say that i'm i will still watch what I feel like watching and when I want to watch it. I just think that critical thinking and good journalism and and, and conversation around this is what's really important and then keep watching it. I mean, it's still art.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, the old line is there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. So, you know, as a consumer, it's it would be impossible for us to avoid everything that has like sort of deep economic or, you know, gender based problems or whatever. I don't think that's every, like, the sort of every man or every woman's burden, but I do think that there are people like critics and journalists who can put pressure on institutions to change.
0: Can I ask you, you've been writing about um, sort of misogyny towards women and on, online and, and, and you've been writing about this. What kind of reactions do you get personally writing about these things?
1: They're mostly nice. <laughs> I hear from a lot of women who, you know, have had similar experiences or, or see a part of their life experience and things that I've written about, and that's always really humbling and gratifying. Um, and I get a lot of emails from men who sort of like are trying to ask me gotcha questions.
0: Oh, really? How, <laughs> like, <laughs> how would those be?
1: <laughs> well, it, you know, like with the piece that I just wrote, I got a. I got a lot of emails from men that were around the, the sort of theme of like, well, what about Wagner? You know, uh, now my my job to answer like every question about every artist in history. And the truth is like, I have been thinking for a long time about how gender intersects with pop culture and power and capitalism and stuff. And I have spent no time thinking about how anti-Semitism intersects with like 19th century opera. So I would love for to read an informed piece about that. But um, I think just because I weigh in in one thing doesn't mean that I need to... Some people want me to solve the whole thing and I don't know how to do that.
0: Well, no one can do that. <laughs> but do you think that, um, I mean, the past uh, few years, I, I would say there's been very many... Um, horrible revelations, but lots of also sort of things happening in in institutions um, from online institutions to sort of tech companies and so on, where these things have become out in the open and people are talking about it more. Do you see that it has had positive effects?
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, as sort of upsetting as this time has been, I think it's also a great moment. Um, I've been really heartened by just watching people come forward. Um, I do think that what happens next will be really important and interesting because I I don't think it's sustainable for, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post to have to write an article about every abuser in order for that particular institution to reckon with something. Uh, Even here, you know, the number of stories that have come in about, even Harvey Weinstein are like too many to investigate and write about like he, that is how prolific he was. So, um, there needs to be some sort of, you know, way to sustain this that doesn't, um, that doesn't require an expose for every single person. I mean, I think it's obvious now that this is like a deep social problem that we have. It's not a, it's not a problem of, the Weinstein company, particular Uber or whatever. Uh, how to grapple with that going forward though now is, that's a big question for me.
0: How do you think journalism should grapple it going forward?
1: Um, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I'm really interested and excited to, to see stories that are um, about working class women. Um, those are different types of stories because those women aren't famous and the people they're accusing aren't famous. Um, and so in some ways I think they're more crucial and important to tell. Um, but they don't cause the kind of splash that a story about, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow does, um, which is, I think, uh, that's an, a sort of interesting part of it to think about You know, part of the reason that I think Harvey Weinstein, uh, that story caused such an impact uh, was because it intersects with, like, gossip reporting in a way that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Um, So how to carry these stories on, you know, past uh, the idea of taking down, like, a big, you know, new Silicon Valley app that everyone already thinks is, like, a little bit evil or... Moving it past like a story that's also like an insider Hollywood gossip story uh, is, I think, a big a big project for journalists now. Right.
0: I wanted to ask you about the felt the David Carr Fellowship that I that I mentioned um, earlier. Sure. Um, what did that sort of mean to you
1: as a journalist to get that? Uh, it. Meant a lot to me. Um, David Carr was not someone who I knew very well personally. I met him once after uh, I lost a job and um, one of my editors put me in touch with David uh, because we both sort of came from a similar place. I started my career at the Washington City paper, which is the alt-weekly in Washington, D.C., Um, and... David Carr was the editor there for many years. So he was sort of like the mentor to my editor. So I sort of felt like I had like acquired his journalistic DNA in a way where my, he was my editor's editor. Um, But when I lost a job, uh, he very nicely agreed to uh, meet with me in the New York Times building. And I sort of wasn't sure what to expect and was a little flustered, like it was my first time in the building and the the elevators are super fancy in a way that makes them hard to know how to use them. Uh, And he met with me and was just so kind. Uh, The thing I really remember about it was him addressing me like an equal. You know, I sort of thought that I would be coming to meet this, like, towering figure in journalism and be this small person.
0: (laughs) And I remember that too with him and, and everyone says that that he really did treat everyone and he was curious about everyone
1: yeah it didn't matter so it how was, big um, his
0: career got yeah
1: it was really just the the best thing that could have happened to me at that moment sort of feeling like um I deserve to be ha- sharing a cookie with him <laughs> he bought me a cookie also uh so when they announced this fellowship um after David died, uh, it was just such a huge honor to be able to, um, you know, walk in like a, a very small portion of like his path. Uh, and it's also, you know, I I feel like I owe him so much because by naming this fellowship after him, it's given me and the other fellows who are here with me like so much more license than we would have had had we just been coming in without that, um, because he had this sort of specific um, legacy of speaking truth to power and uh, writing, you know, personally and writing with like this wonderful voice. It's allowed us to do to do a little bit of that ourselves. Where like coming in as a younger writer, you're not always given that opportunity. So I owe a lot to him.
0: And and one of the things that he was actually on this Weinstein trail many, many years ago, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, it's interesting to think about about that finally sort of coming out, you know, even like years after his death. But yeah, he was on it too.
0: So it feels like it's sort of a full circle that um, that this is coming. It would have been interesting to see his his takes on all that that what's happening right now
1: yeah i think he would be proud of the reporters oh i think he so, did sure. it i mean this
0: this is definitely a feat of journalism the way this came out yeah
1: especially after learning that you know the the resources that weinstein brought to bear to try to to prevent journalists from saying anything
0: right the mossad yeah. agents and all that yeah <laughs> Um, finally, I just want to circle back to to your article. Um, it's a sort of big question, but does art excuse crime in these cases, do you think?
1: I think it can work to do that um if we don't if we're not careful, if we don't think critically about it, um, because art is so emotional and so personally valued and so valuable and um it's so important to to shut down any idea that anyone might be censored from creating these things that there can be a seduction i think that art can perform in making want to to not understand how it's made There's this, you know, I mean, especially, you know, in comedy, there's this idea that, like, if you know how a joke is written, it's sort of like it's not funny anymore. Right. So um, art wants to to paper over the way that it's made. Um, But I think that we can hold more than one idea in our heads at the same time and that we just need to do that going forward.
0: But the weird thing is that that it's not really um, being sort of that we don't know how it's made. All of these things, the people we have talked about, or at least many of them, have been open secrets. I mean, even I as a journalist in in Europe didn't, not so much about the sexual aspects, but I heard tons of stories about Weinstein being, you know, just yelling at people at press junkets and, and having rages and things like that. I mean, everyone knew that art was being made by uh, this, yeah. these type of rumors.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But still I mean, it's excused. Yeah, and it's almost romanticized. Uh, exactly, you know. that's
0: what I think is the key, that there's a yeah. romanticism in this myth of the, of the artistic genius and we don't want to see it in any other way.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you think about movies as a type of escapism, which is not all they are, um, I think there's also been this sort of romanticism of the idea that the artist can do things that, you know, regular people aren't allowed to do, that it's this sort of like, societal outlet. Um, And it's just, I mean, it's just not true. It's just this like, big, fake excuse (laughs) for powerful people abusing people who don't have as much power.
0: Right, to actually be masturbating in front of your your people you're working with (laughs) that's the
1: excuse yeah like keep it to your critically acclaimed tv show and it's fine everyone will accept that
0: well thank you so much for your time um this was really interesting and for your writing i can't wait to keep reading what you're doing
1: yeah thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about it
0: Thank you so much to Amanda Hess. You can read her work at The New York Times and you can follow her on Twitter at Amanda Hess. And thank you so much for listening. Send us any thoughts or comments you have to popcultureconfidential.com and follow us on Twitter at PodPopCulture. And if you have a moment, take some time to rate us on iTunes or SoundCloud. That really helps us out a lot. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, theme music by Karl Boy, produced by Rene Vikander and myself. I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Thank you so much for listening.